Um, yeah, thank you all so much for, uh, for coming. My name's uh, James Wilson. I've been a long time fan of Mockingbird and uh, uh, the work that Dave does. And I'm a long time member of Christ Church. Uh, and uh, they're actually my sponsor in parish in the ordination process, which is uh, some of anybody who's been through the ordination process. This can be the longest low hurdle relay race you've ever ran in your life. And so uh, I'm currently in the midst of that. Um, uh, but um, so this uh, this uh, talk is on uh, the French uh, Catholic thinker. Sorry, this uh, podium's a bit short. Um, uh, thanks, appreciate it. Um, has anybody read Rene Girard before? Is anybody familiar with his work? A couple, a couple, a few. Okay, great. Um, well. Uh, uh, Gerard is a, uh, I think he's the most profound uh, uh, Christian thinker of this century. I, I really, and I'm not being hyperbolic. Um, he's, uh, it's, uh, it, but he wasn't properly a theologian. He was a cultural anthropologist and his work has been influential in the fields of psychology, uh, anthropology, uh, uh, literary studies, political theory, um, but he's, to my, I'm, it's been uh, upsetting for me after studying at three of uh, the greatest or most renowned uh, theological institutions. Um, he's almost never taught at seminaries. Um, and, uh, and this is for um, a couple of reasons. Come on in, Josh. Um, um, he's, and this is because he's a, he's a very difficult thinker who's introducing uh, a whole new uh, lexicon of, of words and terms and ways of thinking. So we really challenge you to think about the faith in an entirely new way. And it's not theology proper. It's, it's really social theory, political theory, cultural anthropology. Um, it is worth noting that uh, though Gerard was a kind of a, a sexy French postmodern atheist, he was really involved in that. Uh, that milieu, he did have a, a massive conversion experience and uh, was uh, baptized into the Catholic faith, and uh, he uh, and he was remarried in the Catholic faith, had all his children baptized, and remained a committed Orthodox believer. And so he, he believed in the whole thing, the metaphysics and everything else. But his own thought, he's like, this is not what I do. I do um, cultural anthropology. So uh, when, when Gerard was admitted into uh, the French Immortals, the Académie Française, there's 100 leading French intellectuals at a given time. When he was admitted, they called him the, the Charles Darwin of the human sciences. Mm -hmm. And I like this uh, example, not only because he's doing the hard work of starting to reconnect this long, worn out divide between science and religion. It's worn out, it's always been un unnecessary. It comes from the uh, conceptual and metaphysical incoherences of the way uh, the secular world conceives of these categories. And he's starting to reconnect them. Um, but I also like it because, like Darwin, it's one tiny, very small, simple, straightforward insight that, when you start to tease it out, has massive implications to transform all of the ways we think about the human sciences, which is why Gerard is one of the only thinkers I know who's been influential across the board from, from, you know, I mean, it's almost like Augustine, you know, you've got 
Augustine the psychologist, Augustine the political theorist, Augustine the anthropologist, you know, that he, and I think that this is really a way of reclaiming uh, a medieval and classical notion of theology as the queen of the sciences. You know, this is how it was in the, in the, the all knowledge eventually flowed into theological questions. Um, this is not how the modern academy treats theology. Um, it's not how they treat metaphysical questions. That all knowledge eventually flows into these, that is connected, and it flows into these essential mysteries. And I really think that Girard is capturing it. So that's why I like um, that term. Um, so uh, I, he's, he's also a thinker that he developed his work in steps. And, uh, he's, and he's not the best writer. It's really beautiful when you're familiar with his work, but it can be very hard when you just dive in. It's very alienating. Um, it's, it's simple and straightforward, but it's almost like he's so excited about his next insight that he doesn't go back and explain to you everything else that he's been working on. So I want to take a step back and take, get a look at the big picture. I'm going to do a totally inadequate job uh, because I'm going to summarize about eight or nine books in about 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> So, uh, but hopefully they'll just, if someone, if, if someone could kind of keep one eye on the time and, uh, and uh, stop me at 25 minutes, I'd love to just get questions. Because some of the best of Gerard insights came out in the context of, di of dialogue and questions. And some of his books are just straight up interviews. And they're some of my favorite stuff where you start to see how he's, uh, how he's thinking. Just quickly, the books I'd recommend. This book was given to me my first year of college. And it's called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. I, uh, if you grew up in Australia, you don't hear about Satan enough, and I'm a huge metal fan. And this, this, this is a could be an Iron Maiden album cover, so I kept it. I didn't, I didn't understand it at all. I didn't understand it one bit. Uh, and I went back to it again four years later, and I hated it. I just didn't make any sense to me. And then all of a sudden, something started to click with certain interviews I was reading, and it was really in the task of preaching. And it was as I was trying to translate Augustine. Augustine's higher order kind of metaphysical concepts. This is something that Mockingbird does so well. They can take these, because theology matters. Metaphysics really matters. Mm -hmm. If you mess that up, you can really end up preaching uh, horrendous visions. I mean, they're, they're diabolical versions of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and orthodoxy exists to preserve those things that Christianity doesn't become a vehicle for our own personal agenda. Um, and as I was preaching, and trying to translate Augustine into a way that a congregation could understand on the level of existential experience, I found myself returning to René Girard again and again and again as a way to translate uh, a thinker that's 1,700 years old in a way that people could start to uh, recognize themselves. Um, so the, sorry, I know I'm taking a second to get into Girard proper. Um, but I, the reason I think this is that he is so important, and why I think uh, you know, Bishop Barron called him the church father for a secular age, um, is because, especially in seminaries, we're all, we, we, this term secular age, uh, we live in a secular world, we're all aware of the realities of uh, church, church decline, you know, the sufferings of the institutional church. I don't think we are open and honest about it enough. But I really think that this, in the context of seminaries, we tend to put on blinders and we, we think of church decline as like a church problem without seeing the church decline within the broader like, culture of institutional reckoning that's happening throughout the West right now. Um, and it's, we're living in this moment where, yes, like Whiggish Enlightenment, 19th century 
historians predicted, the church has continued to decline. But unlike those thinkers predicted, there is no stable secular world that's arriving to replace religion. Right, in, right at the moment Christendom is at its lowest point of cultural influence, is right at the moment these institutions that were built on secular reason are revealing themselves to be like snakes eating their tails. They're, 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 rather than being the stable systems that run themselves, they are turning out to be the source of our very discontent. I'm talking about you know, world market capitalism. I'm talking about technology. I'm talking about uh, 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 even democracy. These things were supposed to run themselves. They were metaphysically neutral. They were morally neutral. You could believe whatever you want, and these things would just work. And you know, and as, as the last, especially you know, the last 10 years have shown us, this is just not the case. Um, the, uh, our modern moment is plagued by such a multiplicity of overlapping spiritual crises that we have a difficult time connecting. Um, political polarization, that's happening, doesn't seem to be slowing down. I'm talking about technology, which uh, is developing faster than the human wisdom to know if it's even good for us. Most of it's turning out to be really bad for us. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about the, uh, the uh, ep epidemic of depression and suicide that's, by all statistics, not slowing down. And our secular experts, our secular priests, aren't, don't have any solutions or any way of connecting these things other than funneling more money into these institutions um, that uh, don't seem to be working. So Gerard's ability to comprehend all of these things that are happening, this variety of overlapping phenomenon, and show how bring the biblical tradition and the religious tradition in the West to bear on the contemporary moment through history is just profound. So if you don't get anything out of the next 10 minutes, just stick with Gerard, I promise you. Like, I promise you. And it's orthodox. It's not weird. It's not weird. It's not Iron Maiden. I wish it was. But just, just stick with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, as I was talking to my, my um, you know, bishop about this, you know, the, and the real problem, as I see it, is at the, at the heart of church decline is that um, in spite of this kind of crisis we're experiencing, I was really disappointed being somebody in the ordination process that I didn't feel like the church had anything unique to say, um, to speak its own unique wisdom into a cultural, social, psychological, political moment that's absolutely desperate for it, and the church has nothing to say but what everybody else is saying. Um, and that's a real tragedy. And I, I told that to my, my bishop. I said, you know, if, if our biblical tradition doesn't have anything to say about global plagues and spiritual despair and collapsing empires, then we should all watch football, you know? I mean, right? I mean, it's just, um, and there is something to say. Um, and so that's why um, I think Gerard is so important, because he brings back the wisdom tradition in Christianity. Christianity has a wisdom tradition, um, which is, uh, you know, for so often, um, we think, of, uh, we think of religion as this sort of like optional worldview, um, but this is not how the ancient, the ancient church, that's a German word, Weltbild, it's modern, you know, you have your worldview and your worldview. This was, for Augustine, this was id quod est, that which is. It was a, and the power of Christianity was that it could, it was revelatory of a reality that was taking place whether you believed it or not. Um, and this is something that we've lost. We think that this is, Christianity is something for, uh, you know, uh, the 
you know, private confessional of the community. We've lost our ability to preach a wisdom that's happening um, in time and in history and in society and in the depths of each human heart. Am I making sense? Are you all with me? Okay. Um, you know, I mean, Aquinas has this beautiful image of this, which C.S. Lewis quoted it all the time. Um, I'm not being a revanchist Thomist here. Um, but uh, he said, uh, you know, he said, I, you know, Christianity is, is like the sun. I, I, I believe it not because I can see it. When I stare at it, it burns, it's too true. It burns the, the uh, instrument. I believe it because by it, I see everything else. And I think uh, uh, the, the church has lost that sense of its wisdom, that it's a revealed truth that has the power to reveal various aspects and various levels of reality. Gerard is profound, I think, revealing how Christian is not just, and this is something that the folks at Mockingbird get so well, um, and it's, it's really classical, it's, uh, is, that, is that Christianity is an anthropology as it's a theology. It's a way of being, you know, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, sometimes I think we get so wrapped up in uh, defending uh, Jesus's divinity that we forget the fact that he's the true human. He's the, you know, he's the, the original human. Uh, Adam is the type of the one who is to come, you know, say biblically. Um, and he can teach us about the meaning of being human. And this is the level that Gerard is assessing it. Um, so, um, and Mockingbird Ministries, as you all know, does this so well. You know, it's just, it, it, it can read the culture and read, you know, and see deeper into the, into the culture than all the talking heads on the news because it's got the Christian story showing you the dynamics that's at work. Um, and and uh, so that's why I'm such a big fan. Okay, so um, Gerard. Um, so Gerard began his work as a literary critic. Um, not, uh, he just was reading Dostoevsky and trying to teach it, and he got really interested in the dynamics of conflict and that the roots of the conflict being a strange insight he saw into human desire. Um, if there's one word, I'm going to break this up into three parts. So if there's one word that can, uh, that can teach you about um, uh, that it's at the heart of Gerard's thinking, it's this term, mimetic desire. Um, and it was that he was a level of human desire that we don't recognize on the level of conscious experience. And that while we're all raised um, romantic individualists, we think our desires are so intimately our own. They, they tell us about our own unique destiny and our own tastes are so, the bands we love, the people we fall in love with, our desires are so intimately our own. And Gerard says that actually desires are triangular and mimetic, that human beings are copycats, we're naturally imitative creatures. This is how we learn languages. This is how culturals, cultures get transferred from generation to generation because we are naturally imitating. And we are, no, we are most imitative on the deepest level, which is desire. Um, now, what does this mean? Um, it, just, it just means that, um, that, that when you think your desire is straightforward, there are other people and what they desire that, those, that you are actually mediating your desire through these other people. Uh, on the most simple level, anybody who's got kids, um, you, can see, uh, you can see this. If you buy 100 toys, you scatter them out about all about the rugs. There's 100 toys to choose from, and you're in the kitchen, and all of a sudden you hear your kids screaming and kicking at each other, and they're fighting over the same toy. So what's, I mean, that it's, cause what's, ha and what's happening is there is that 
they are functioning as what Gerard calls mediators or models for desire. It's because you want it, you think you want it for itself, but you actually want it because they want it. You're, you're modeling, you're imitating, and you're mediating it. This is how all advertising works. You know, you go, do you want Air Jordans because of the innate qualities of them? Or is it because of their, you, are you mediate? Why do they get Michael Jordan to sell the shoes? Because you're mediating your desire for the shoes through another person, through your mediator or model. Um, everybody with me? Okay. So Christians naturally, I found when I try to teach this, they naturally react against this notion completely because love um, and desire is so important to us. And it's such an essential part of our Christian tradition and our vision of who God is and our vision of our own destiny that we, do, the idea that our desires are sort of blind imitation um, is, can be like, feel threatening at first. Um, but I really think that it, it cuts to, um, it's the name of Seculosity, Dave Zoll's book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic book. But what Dave catches in that book is that there is a, um, um, a, uh, a better word than mimetic desire. Is it's, uh, it's desire is metaphysical and it's mediated. So whenever you hear, if you read Gerard, desire is metaphysical and mediated. Um, now, what does that mean? Um, it means that when human beings think we want things, true human desire is to be something, right? That humans want to become things. Um, Gerard, like Augustine um, before him, thinks that while all of our various desires for all of our various different objects, where we want to go to school, what we eat, how we dress, we all feel like they're totally separate, but they're all connected as one unified yearning to become. Uh, that, and the biblical tradition reads this in Genesis as the desire to become, uh, if you eat the apple, you'll become like God. Um, so he, he sees this. Uh, this is, this uh, is what uh, Davis calls in his book, is that we're all seeking en enoughness. Um, that this, this deep uh, yearning is um, that we have a, all of our desire comes from a sense that our own identity is lacking. All desire comes from these deep holes we feel in our parts, wounds, the sense that we're not yet what we're supposed to be, um, that being and belonging are at the heart of human yearning. Now, and that's what Dave talks about, the law and enoughness, all right? Um, so the, what, what mediated desire tells us is that in this search for wholeness, there's always another human or group of humans that are functioning as our models for metaphysical completion. We have models in the world that are functioning as our God. Um, so this is, you know, this is what, you know, do, do you want the BMW? Yes, it's a good car. But what you really want is you want the metaphysical completion that owning that object promises you, the elite status of the group that you're associated with. Why? Why are we obsessed with Ivy League schools? Is it the schools? Or is it to be a Harvard man, to become something, to become the kind of person that is associated with these objects that we're competing for, that all promise metaphysical completion? Um, why are uh, all these Brooklyn hipster kids liking all these terrible bands, you know, on Pitchfork, <laughs> instead of totally awesome bands like Iron Maiden? Because they're all imitating each other. They're all imitating each other for identity, for. Uh, and the elite status in the group that promises um, completion. Um, this is why Abercrombie, can, Abercrombie and Fitch can sell clothes and advertisements full of naked people. There's no clothes. 
um, because Abercrombie & Fitch knows that the clothes are transient, that identity is everything. Identity is the heart of human yearning, and that there's always models that mediate that. Um, and the, 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 the problem with this uh, condition um, is what the church traditionally called sin. I mean, August, the way Augustine phrases it, this is the consequence of loving the creation instead of the creator. This is, this is, it's the exact same um, dynamic. And mimetic desire um, reveals that there's a profound level of self-deception at the heart of the human condition. Um, as we end up reconfiguring our understandings of ourselves, blinding ourselves to parts of reality that might threaten this identity that we've constructed for ourselves. Um, and uh, and uh, none of us want to awaken to the reality that our desires are imitative, um, um, because this would expose the identity that we project to be a farce. Um, and uh, um, this is a, a real tragedy. I mean, you really see this on things like social media. You know, I mean, you really, this is like a petri dish for this dynamic, because we're all projecting a status of completion that, that none of us actually have. You see what I'm saying? That we're all projecting that. We're inspiring it. We're presenting ourselves as models to be imitated, in turn inspiring imitation, right? And then it's driving everybody to, for this fulfillment that always escapes our grasp. As soon as we get the objects we think we desire, as Proust says, they, they turn to dust in our hands. We immediately fall out of love with them as soon as we possess them. Because what we, we never wanted them, we wanted the completion they promised, which they can't do. Does it make sense? You'll follow me? So the, the other thing that you get with Instagram is just a great kind of petri dish to explain Girardian desire because the problem is, is that our, our models of imitation are, end up uh, 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 producing this dual sense of um, admiration and resentment. Um, that the way Gerard put it is our models inevitably become our rivals. This is why brothers fight. This is why best friends compete over the same women. I mean, this is the, why you fall in love with people you admire fall in love with. Um, that, um, as uh, Gerard puts it, as two hands reach for the same object, those hands inevitably clench into fists. And he's really diagnosing um, a deep uh, violence that's endemic to the human condition. Um, and that, that he's really searching. You know, we've kind of been sold on this. Uh, um, you know, modernity, I don't like that term, but modernity has kind of sold us on this vision that what causes violence is, is ultimate values. That if we just stopped believing in things, then we would stop fighting. And it's just not true. It's just not true. I mean, we're not, we're not fighting, uh, we, we're not engaging in global warfare because we, because we have, you know, diff, different metaphysics. We're engaging in global warfare because we're the rival brothers. You know, that's, there's this rivalrous search uh, you know, unassuageable human yearning that's driving human societies, um, and it eventually crescendos into conflict. And you really see this, like I said, you see this on uh, status forums like Instagram, uh, Instagram, which are really designed to um, produce this admiration um, and resentment and this needing to uh, fulfill for enoughness, as Dave says. Um, and this. Uh, always has the tendency to spiral out of control um, into what Gerard calls the mimetic contagion. And, and this, the mimetic contagion is what you see on Instagram. It's making everybody trapped in recidivistic, obsessive um, things that make us sadder and more angry. And, and this is why, I mean, this is really why 
the longer these these platforms stick around, the angrier we're getting. I mean, it's 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 you can really see it happening. Um, and what do you, how am I doing on time, by the way? Do I need to? That's uh, 18 minutes. Oh, that's it, I'm at 18 minutes? Okay, great. Um, so what he says, now where does this lead? Um, he said, as this mimetic contagion um, spirals uh, out of control, this kind of cauldron of unfulfilled yearning um, that we're all experiencing, um, we're not projecting it, but we're all experiencing it. Um, he says it leads to what he calls the scapegoat mechanism. Am I familiar with that term? Mm -hmm. So this is this is the other big kind of plank in Girardian theory. I, I don't like the term mechanism because again, it makes you feel like you're just a machine. Um, but he's really just using mechanism to show you that it's really unconscious. Um, you know, when I mean, when Jesus says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do," that's the first articulation of the unconscious. Like they really don't know what they're doing. They've, in their own self-deception, they think they're absolutely righteous in their own self-deceptive illusion that their own addictive, recidivistic habits have brought them into. Am I making sense? Okay. Um, so as this spirals out of control, the, the scapegoat mechanism kicks in and there is a collective discharge of communal resentment onto um, a, a scapegoat, a sacrificial victim, a um, people or um, a group of uh, people. Um, sorry. Um, and what's what's interesting about uh, the scapegoat uh, mechanism, uh, you know, when you've got uh, a community plagued by internal divisions, is it kind of works. It kind of creates this um, rush of peace and kind of solidarity that comes when people gather together to blame. Why is this happening? Why am I unfulfilled? Why am I, you know, it's, it's, their, it's, their, it's their fault. You know, this is, a, you know, Faulkner um, captures, you know, the demonic insanity of m the mob's sense of righteousness in, in his lynch mob scenes. They're horrifying. They're absolutely horrifying because these people have kind of uh, sacralized themselves with this sense of innocence. And what they think is justice is deep-seated vengeance. You know, so much of what we think of as justice, history will reveal to have been absolutely selfish vengeance. I mean, and this is what's, this is, uh, I think um, you can see this dynamic happening with the, kind of the mob polarization of politics mm -hmm. that happening right now, where nobody's quite sure of what they believe, but we're dead sure of who our enemies are. That, we're, that when we're not bound together, I mean, this is, a, this is a very Augustinian notion. There are two gates to the city, you know, there's, there's two kinds of love, you know, it's not, bunch of optional worldviews. You're either you either love in the truth or you love a you know a desperate projection of your own inner poverty. This is, this is sorry. 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 Sorry, man. Um, um, no. Does that sentence make sense? Okay. See they got it. Don't make fun. Um, no, so uh, I mean, and on the most nefarious level, you know, you can see in the grandest scale, you can look at you can look at Hitler, you know, who came to power in a in a time of of uh, tremendous internal divisions, the uh, uh, the poverty after World War One, mm -hmm. and and Hitler was able to create a tremendous sense of brotherly love and nationalism, this surge of meaning out of finding someone to hate, yeah. to blame. Um, with, with, 
meanwhile, all of these people that are fighting are blind to the reality that what's actually driving them is, is unfulfilled love, you know? Is the desire that they, they're not yet what they are, right? I mean, um, and so, and okay, really quickly, Gerard's still not a, a, a believer at this point that he's, come, that he's coming up with all these different things. There's a series of books. And then he starts reading ancient myth in his cultural anthropology, and he sees this dynamic of scapegoating really at the heart of, of every mythology across cultures, across the centuries. The same dynamic is happening. Um, and when, you know, the, the, in Oedipus, when the chorus comes in, you know, when, when Oedipus dies, the chorus is always right, you know? The chorus is always right, that the sacrifice, because it creates this surge of fellow feeling, it creates this temporary peace, it sort, it sort of functions like it's supposed to. It creates a, there's a real temporary solidarity that comes from the unproblematic discharge onto uh, the other. And they're usually dead, so they can't really defend themselves. And so, I mean, I mean, and honestly, and I, and, and the important thing is, we all do this. I mean, when I, when I was a rock and roll bonehead, we kicked a drummer out of the band, and we blamed everything on the drummer. We were a band again. It's like, man, gosh, my time is great right now. I'm killing this show. Why? Because we kicked that guy out. I mean, it, it was, it, it's, this dynamic partially works. I mean, Satan in some way does cast out Satan. This is the way, I mean, think about it. When Gerard, if you want to think about it in like Mockingbird terms, like when Gerard says sacrifice, think law. Um, in the sense the law kind of works, you know? I mean, the levy's gonna break in your life, in the world, and in the church, but it, it works for a bit, right? I mean, the way Gerard phrases it is sacrifice contains violence in both senses of the term. And on the one hand, it is violence, and yet it also contains it. It stops it, the war of all against all in the mimetic contagion from spiraling out of control. Um, and because it creates this temporary peace, um, Gerard sees this at the heart of all archaic religions across time, that, that really that the beginning of human community, what you call sin at the heart of our relationships, original sin, is this violent, rivalrous jealousy, what St. What, uh, Augustine calls superbia, the desire to be uh, separate and superior and complete, is, leads to a violence that is really endemic to the human person. Um, we're not going to float off to some, you know, John Lennon Neverland, where as long as we stop believing in things, we're going we're gonna to stop hurting each other. It's a, do you all see what I'm saying? Um, so because of this, these societies, the, 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 they ritualistically rehearse this violence in the, in the act of blood sacrifice. I mean, have you ever think about how strange that is, that no matter how far back we go in different societies, People climb up on a mountain and, you know, whack a, a, a boar's head off to, to take their, you know, it just, it, it seems crazy. We, and we just kind of slough that off and be like, oh, people were crazy back then. <laughs> you know, they did weird things back then. Well, why is this? What's going on? And you can look at this heuristically. You don't have to take it literally. Gerard thinks it's literal, that human community um, pre-Christ pre is, is bound together by by the ritualistic rehearsal of sacrificial violence mm -hmm. is what binds 
the community together. And that's why we rehearse it on a yearly basis, blood sacrifice. Um, so the gods smile upon the sacrifice. The chorus comes in, it condemns the victim. The, vi the victim dies. Everybody gets wrapped up in that fellow feeling. And then he reads the Bible. And he says, from the very beginning of the Bible, it's begins in, it begins in Genesis. It's not just Old Testament was bad, New Testament was good. From the very beginning, he sees this self-reflective, self-critical, self-diagnosis that's absolutely unique to the Jewish people um, that, that is at work from the very beginning of, um, of the scriptures. So, I mean, one way of thinking about this, you think about the myth of the founding of Rome. Uh, you know, very quickly, Romulus kills Remus to found Rome. The gods smile on Romulus. Rome is born. Uh, it's the exact same dynamic in Cain and Abel, but, but God's, God doesn't smile on Cain. God knows, I mean, you've got the two rival brothers. One gets approved, one doesn't. The other one offloads his sacrificial rivalry onto the scapegoat victim, and God condemns it from the beginning. I mean, and think about it. I mean, these, are, these are God's chosen people. And what, what scriptures do they make canonical? It's not the people that say how great they are. It's the crazy people that are covered in goatskins and feces who are telling them they're hypocrites and they're liars and they're, 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 their illusion, their, their self-deceptive, uh, self-justifying uh, uh, projected model is wrong. And they, they make these... They canonize these. And it it's up, goes up through Isaiah. It's there from the beginning. So he calls the Bible a text in travail. It is groaning under the labor pains of something that's about to get birthed. Um, and then there's Jesus. Um, and you have Caiaphas in the Gospel of John who absolutely reveals the nature of the scapegoat mechanism. He says, it is better that one should die than the entire nation should perish. This is the old rehearsal myth. And yet, God, in the moment, you know, God forgive them for they don't know what they do, it's revealed that God is not on the side of the accusers as he is in all other archaic mythology, but God is the scapegoated victim. And the moment the God of Israel is revealed to be at cross purposes with the high priest of Israel, that is an apocalypse. It is a revelation. It is pulling the veil away. Um, and it is not something that can be put back. Um, I mean, I really think Nazi Germany was the last people that said, we've got to put this genie back in the bottle. You know, this has gotten out. It's truly a revelation. I mean, it is, and it is something that the moment that Jesus is revealed to be innocent, that he's not guilty, all these people think he's righteous, and yet the moment he dies, what's the first thing the Roman soldier says in, in, in Luke? Truly this man was innocent. In Mark, truly, truly this man was the son of God. Um, and, and as soon as you have Christianity spread, um, blood sacrifice goes away. This is why it seems impossible for us to even think about. I mean, the dynamic is still happening. It happens in me. I mean, I mean it ha it's, it's happening with all of us. If you're frustrated over not getting a promotion and you're doing the dishes and you break a plate, like that's sacrifice. That's like blood sacrifice. Or you kick a hole in the wall. Or you're, you're, mad, at, you're mad at your aunt and you jerk the dog chain, you know, or you overdrive your engine. That's sacrifice. That's happening in us. It's still there. Um, the dynamic is still there. But the key, the whole dynamic for Girard is that what makes Christianity so 
unique is that Christian conversion is about having the cross reveal to you. I, I mean, as, as they say in Mockingbird all the time, you got to hear the bad news about yourself before you hear the good news. That the cross reveals to you your own self-righteous participation in scapegoating. Your own way, mimetic contagion, leads you to self-righteous condemnation. Um, this is, I mean, this is, Gerard's, is this interesting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I can turn, I'm just going to turn to a fire hose with this stuff, you know? No, but I mean, this is like, this is how to, I mean, Peter's denial. I mean, how many people have been in church and you read Peter's denial as, you know, oh, even Peter messes up every once in a while, you know what I mean? I mean, who's heard, has anybody heard that sermon? Um, I've wrote that sermon. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but which, what, what, a, what, you know, August, I think, you know, I mean, an Augustinian way and a Girardian way of looking at that is Peter is the good soldier. He's like, I'm never going to, I'm never going to betray you. Everybody else is going to betray you. I'm not going to. He's the good soldier. He's the, he's the righteous one. It, what does what Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan, right? And then he predicts, before the cockroaches, you will deny me three times. So when, so when, you know, Peter, you know, they're all on the hunt, they're all on the, they're all on the lookout for the disciples, and the little girl asks Peter, you know, are you, you know, you're from Nazareth, are you one of them? He says, no, I'm not that, and he says it three times, which, so Peter has to awaken to the fact that he was part of the crowd, that even Peter, that we're all influenced, I mean, this is when we, we talk in Mockingbird about your inability to save yourself, you have to realize that we are so profoundly influenced by the mob, that only recognizing that you're part of it and you participate in scapegoating is the only chance of being liberated from it, and it's impossible to see without the revelation of Christ. I mean, this is in Dostoevsky, you know, they're talking about, I mean, the idea that we're living in a post-Christian society, I mean, Gerard and Tom Holland is about to say, it's, it's an absolute joke. I mean, that it's that Christianity's core tenets are as pervasive as, any, as anything. And when we criticize Christian, I mean, the, the defense of victims, you know, universal brotherhood, these, these, you, these values that were revolutionary in, uh, you know, in ancient times are now broadly part of how the West understands itself. When we criticize Christianity, we're doing it on Christian terms. Um, this, is, this is, I mean, this is a profound, uh, you know, and it's, you know, with Dostoevsky, you know, he sees the burgeoning Bolshevik revolution, which is really trying to bring about the egalitarian kingdom of God without Christianity, you know? It's, we're going to do it. We're all going to be equal. You know, this is going to be the universal brotherhood of man that Jesus promised us, and we're going to bring it back. And the Father Zosima and Brothers Karamazov, you know, 40 years before the Bolshevik revolution said, if you try to bring about the kingdom of God with, apart from Christ, apart from that self recognition, he said, I promise you, you will bathe the world in blood. And he did. It, it really, I mean, this stuff is, this, this is a reality that is happening. You know, this is not, uh, you know, the, the Bible has unleashed a reality that is at work in time and history and in your heart. And it's the most, I mean, once you see this, you start to see it everywhere. It's everywhere. It's happening everywhere. And you can start to connect the, the, the psychological crisis, with the economic crisis, with the political crisis, it's, there's, a, there's a crisis of religious conscience that the secular world does not have the wisdom to handle, and, and the biblical tradition does. Um, and uh, the fact that you know, my own church seems uh, 
not capable of preaching its own wisdom into a, a world that's desperate for it. You know, just says, you know, it just it's just about values. We don't we don't agree. We never agree on our values. You know, and Mockingbird's so good about this. You know, it criticizes the right and the left when it's for its own self righteous, you know, uh, innocence making. You know, because Mockingbird understands it's about pulling the veil away. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, the way the church always responds to questions of, um, I mean, and even, you know, Tom Holland uses this language in his book. We get it from Weber's Sociology of Religions that we live in a disenchanted world. And so many church conversations I have is, how do we re-enchant the world? And I think that that's really the wrong way of looking at it. The disenchantment is Christianity's thing. Christianity is, I mean, the original disenchanter was Jesus, who pulled the veil away and said, the myths you believe are not true. And it's revealing id quod est, that which is. Um, and that's so, what's the, the responsibility of Christianity, I mean, the word is captivated by self-righteous uh, delusions as we've ever been in our current moment. And Christians should do what Christians have always done, which is uh, disenchant the world of our sinful fictions to awaken to uh, the eternal love and truth of God that was revealed in Jesus Christ. That's, I mean, I think, and it's more important now than ever. So that's all I got. I'd love to see if you have any questions.